Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for tuning in. Our desire is to unleash a family of healthy disciple makers in Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. Amen, 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 amen. All right, I got to confess to you, I like, I like dark things. I'm a very morbid, sardonic person, all right? So I really appreciate a good uh, horror film. Um, I'll spare you that today, but I like dystopian type things. Are you familiar with that language? The idea of utopia, dystopia is the opposite. And I've, I've begun introducing my son to dystopian literature and art, and maybe you have seen this one. It's called Wally. all right? It's a family-friendly movie, but if you really think about it, this movie is haunting. And today I hope it haunts us into the encouragement that God can provide in his word. Amen? This movie, Wally, uh, there's a corporation that's taken over everything and ruined the earth. So... There's something to be said in that. Uh, but I'm not saying it. Uh, anyways, but Wally is this trash compacting robot. He's been tasked with cleaning up the earth. The earth has been oversaturated, run amuck with muck. There's trash everywhere of all kinds. But in his 700 years of working, he's developed a bit of a personality. I sound like the trailer exactly. I'm just giving you what the movie is. And he's so funny, and he's a little bit, uh, he's not just quirky, he's kind of like cautious. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh, it's such a good movie. You should watch it, please. Um, there's very little dialogue between the robots, and there's so much character development. It's awesome. But you might be thinking, okay, there's robots, and they're cleaning up the earth. Where are the people? The people are on a space cruise ship. And uh, they've been there for a very long time. 700 years. That's a very long time. And so because the humans are on this cruise ship, they are in this eternal loop of just leisure. The gravity difference has caused their bodies to change, so their bones are a lot smaller. They're kind of built like these overgrown babies, you know? Uh, some of y'all are looking at me like, I don't get it. You just go watch it. Just watch, it on, watch a trailer on YouTube. You'll get the, you'll get the idea. Uh, but they're these overgrown babies, and they've really lost themselves. They are a, a, a sliver of humanity. They are not how they were intended to be. And part of the reason for that is that they don't have any work to be doing. There's no work for the humans to do on this cruise ship as they kind of fly through space. All they do is fly on their little chairs. Their chairs are floating all around the ship, and they have screens, and they're weighted hand and foot on by robots. All these little robots bring them a drink, take away this, do that. They have no concept for what's going on around them. They don't contribute anything. They only consume. That is the, the picture that you get. Remember when I said it's dystopian? Doesn't this sound sad? This is a kid's movie, all right? It's haunting. And in that, they're bored. 
it's so easy to see that the humans are bored and they lack connection. They talk on screens to the person writing right next to them. They've lost themselves. And today I wonder if any of us may have been losing ourselves in our work as well, much like the humans in Wally. You know, it's not that much of a long shot. Uh, many of us are trapped in a lot of consuming, right? Lost in leisure. Cyborgs kind of always addicted to this technology, this screen right next to us. Maybe we even use the screen to talk to the person in the room with us, across the house from us. Or maybe work has just become a means to an end for you. You just kind of clock in and clock out so that you can go do what you really want to be doing. Work is just a check to pay the bills. It's a little more than that. I think that's what's contributed to this thing that we have where everybody kind of wants to retire early. Are you somebody that's chasing early retirement? Everybody wants to retire by the time they're like 35, you know? Uh, and there's something to be said about having multiple income streams. That's a good thing, right? That's great. But everybody wants to like make all of their income passive so they don't have to work. It's kind of like haunting, isn't it? What does that lead to? Well, it leads to boredom, that's for sure. We can see that in Wally. I think we also see it in this passage, and I'll get to that in a second. But part of how we've gotten there is that we don't see the value in our work. If you see the value in your work, you are in the minority, I promise you. If you see your work as purposeful, I bet you are in the minority. It's easy to see like, oh, Miss Irene, she works in healthcare, she's a nurse, she's taking care of people purposeful. A lot of teachers in the room. Teachers, raise your hand. Where are you at? Teachers, teachers, teachers. Look at all these teachers. Educators. Come on, somebody. It's like, oh, their work, purposeful. The next generation, thank you. You're like, me? I just do emails all day. Just show up to meetings. It could have been an email all day. <laughs> What's the purpose in that? Or we don't see the fruit of our labor. We're just constantly working. We don't see the results. Or, most importantly, there is no connection in our work to our worship. We have time with God in the morning, or maybe on break we'll have time with God, like, I don't know, in the bathroom or the break room or something. But during our work, ah, I crave more time with God. And I wonder if it's possible for it to be any different. Have you ever felt any of these tensions? Does any of this ever nod at you in the back of your mind as you gave your life away to someone else's bottom line? Here's a question that I have for us today. How do we become a family that loves through our work? How do we become a family that loves through our work? Or you could say, what's love got to do, got to do with it, being work. And so we're in this series, The Gospel in First Thessalonians, 
And we're in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and Pastor Jerry has kind of had us on this loop of a gospel community, a gospel community. Today we're going to be talking about a gospel community that works. How does the gospel come to bear in our work? Paul believed that the gospel transformed the Thessalonians into a loving community, and I believe that God is still at work through that gospel, transforming his people into communities that love, and that that even has the ability to influence and impact and integrate into our work. Wouldn't that be nice? Doesn't that sound like, oh, sign me up. Please, pick me. Okay, great. I got a hand from a baby in the back. That's what I'm looking for. All right. Me and you, we, we, we here. I think it's Eloise. But Paul, in this passage, I'm going to give you kind of how we're going to work through this. Paul encourages us to love, to work, and then to do something about both of those things. And again, last week, Pastor Jerry, you were talking about how to please God in our purity, right? And today, we're going to look at how to please God in our love. And here's the first thing. Love takes work. Love takes work. Love takes Love takes Anyone who's ever been in any type of relationship of any kind knows that love, no matter who that person is or who you are, it takes work. I don't have enough nods in the building. Y'all must have easy relationships. It's hard being me. Do you know? It's hard to love me. All right? I know, I know that. But Wally was lonely, and Wally worked at his chance to love Eve. He did everything that he could, even when she was not responsive. He poured all of himself, everything that he had learned into doting on this person. Wally, a robot that's imaginary, so he can do whatever he wants, worked at love. We can do the same. We have not just solar power, we have the sun powering, that was bad, but we have the sun powering our love. And that's, that was so bad. It was off the top, didn't plan that, so this is just Ryan Lee Sears, welcome to me. All right. The first word in this passage about. Paul says, about brotherly love. Spare you a lot of grammar, but this is Paul's formula for addressing a list, a, a, a pre-gathered, pre-accumulated list of topics. So in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, but now Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us good news about your faith and your love. He reported that you always have good memories of us, that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we are encouraged about your faith. You're going to see that word encouraged again. But you can see that as Timothy has come to Paul, he has brought this list of things that the Thessalonians are either struggling with or wondering about. And so Paul here in chapter 4 is saying, yo, let me talk to you about this thing, brotherly love. And he even prays it later in chapter 3. He's saying, now may God do these things in verse 12. Now may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow, hold on to encourage, hold on to overflow, with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you, verse 13. Now, he make, now may, oh my goodness, may he make your hearts blameless in holiness. Say love. Say holiness. Do those sound familiar? Paul has a list from Timothy, he has a prayer for the Thessalonians, and then chapter 4, he starts walking through this list and through these things. He started with holiness, that's last week's passage, and now he's moving on to love in this week's passage. 
So Paul is addressing something that they are curious about or struggling with. Is that clear? You track it with me? All right, just want to make sure. So he says, about brotherly love. At that time, brotherly love was something that was just for the family, all right, for the biological family. When you said Philadelphia, that's essentially where we get the term Philadelphia is this word right here, love for your sibling. That was something that stayed at the house. You didn't, you didn't call somebody bro out at the market. You know, hey, what's up, bro? You didn't, you didn't dab people up like that. It was biological family reserved language. Paul, five different times in the New Testament, this word comes up, and he applies it to the church. Interesting. He says, love one another later on in the passage. He calls them brothers and sisters two different times. The gospel has transformed them, not just into a community that thinks similarly, but into a family. When you join Jesus' church, you join a family. Families love, right? But love takes, love takes work. We have to work at love, even familial love, even brotherly, sisterly love, L-Y-L-A-S, right? Love you like a sis? No? All right, I'm going to keep it going. That was for my millennials, but y'all are asleep, so <laughs> y'all are asleep. And then he says, y'all are taught by God. You don't need me to write to you and yet he still writes to you, because you yourselves are taught by God. Y'all are taught by God to love one another. Two quick things from that. Y'all are taught by God. Paul's not saying God has taught y'all in the past and you're still learning, you're still growing off of that investment that was made in you. No, he says y'all are currently, presently taught by God. And that's one, taught by God is one word. Paul coined a phrase, never again used in the Bible, wasn't used broadly until after this. So Paul was a culture maker with this term. He said, y'all are taught by God. That is such high praise. Paul's saying, this isn't something that I taught you when I was there. This isn't something that you need to learn from me as I write. God is with you, is teaching you, how to go about loving one another. Who is teaching you? Who is teaching you to love? You know, in Romans 5, 5, I don't have it on the screen. I'm going to do the old-fashioned way. I'm going to pull it up right here. Unless, let me see if Jordan can beat me to it. Maybe not. Paul says, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The gospel changes people, turns them into those who are pupils of God, loving because they've learned from him. And a family exudes that. And he goes on to say uh, in verse 10, in fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. Something is going on in Thessalonica. They are abundantly loving. They're loving so much that everybody in their whole county, in their whole area knows about it. Something is going on. And he goes on to say, still in verse 10, we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. There's two, uh, two thises there, and each of those goes back to that infinitive. You are doing this. Doing what? 
loving one another. Do this even more. Do what? Love one another. Paul is taking this people who are taught by God, who are excelling in love, who are doing it right. Think about somebody. You know somebody who loves well. You're like, man, every time I'm around them, they remember what we talked about last time. They're asking me intentional questions. They're locked eyes on me. They're paying attention. They really care. They follow up. I know they're praying. They shower me with love. When I'm, when I'm sick, they're coming through with a meal. When I'm Needing some alone time. They're like, hey, you got it. You know, they're not trying to crowd me. Take up all my time. And Paul is writing to people like that and saying, keep going. Why would he do that? Why would he want them to continue growing in love? Because as you know, love is a lifelong discipline. You never really make it, do you? Because the people around you are constantly changing. Their needs are constantly changing. Marriage conferences coming up for the married folk. You know, you don't love the person that you married. You love a different person every day. They're the same and they're different. Who you married at the beginning is not who you're married to at the end. There's a lot of similarities, but we love each other through all the seasons, through all the changes, and I have to grow in love in that way. That's not a marriage thing, is it? That's a life thing. That's any relationship. Pick one. And so for us, we also need this. We are needing to continue learning to love from God because love takes Paul's making this case with a lot of emphatic language. In verse 9, he says, you yourselves. In verse 10, he says, in fact. In verse 10, he says, all the brothers, the entire region, and then he says, do this even more, even more. Do there is that word overflow. Just like the water main or the runoff out here is overflowing with water, right? There's abundant water outside. So all the water, literally in Dallas County, is currently on our lawn. And similarly, he's saying, I want you to continue. I want you to grow, overflow with love. You're already marked by love, but keep growing more and more. I want this to overflow from you. That's what he prayed for them, and now he is encouraging them to do the very same thing because love isn't, isn't passive. It doesn't take a day off. It isn't automated. And Paul signifies this most with the word but. I skipped over it on purpose. In verse 10, he says, but... We encourage you to do this even more. Interesting. He's been given all this affirmation, all this encouragement, and now he says, but we encourage you. Encourage is a soft term that has like a big implication. If I, if I come to somebody, I'm like, hey, man, I encourage you to go have a conversation with them. That's a nice way. It's kind of passive aggressive a little bit. I should just say like, hey, I need you to talk with them by this date or something, right? Just be a little bit more clear. Paul is being a little soft here. He's like, hey, we encourage, he uses this term like eight or nine times in the book. Hey, we encourage you. Paul is trying to give them a directive here. Something is off. Something isn't quite right. It's a, a contrastive, if you will. Most translations that are available, it says but, but all of them say yet or something to the effect that's contrast. He says but, because love overflows, it grows legs. It gets dirt under its nails. Love works. That's the next point. Love takes work, but also work 
takes love. So just flip it. Work takes love. Say, work takes love. We're going to work at that one more time. Work takes love. Okay. Work takes love. I want you to imagine, what does work look like void of love? Do you have something in mind? Okay, somebody, anybody, give me. Fixing a water main. Well, that's work with love, right? What's work without love? Your job. Okay, all right. We're, we, we're applying, okay? We're, we're doing interviews right now. What, what's another example, work without love? Punching the clock. I think about my luggage at home is bad. It's ripped to shreds. You can't tell me that if somebody takes care of my luggage, if somebody takes their time, they're not just ripping, just using their weight all on their leg and just throwing it and letting it smash. It doesn't matter what's in there. Is that working with love? You wouldn't do that with your own baggage. Now, they do a lot of work. I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm just giving you an example. If I was doing it, I would probably do something similar. I doubt I'm going to be real dainty with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, but... What is another example? Give me one more. Work without love. A robot. A robot. Unless you're Wally. That's right. A robot. No connection. No emotion. In the movie, Eve finds this plant. It's a sign of life. And so now that signifies that it's time for the humans to go back because Earth is livable. But technology is kind of taken over, but that's an aside. But the captain finds this plant, and a leaf falls off, and he panics. Oh, my gosh, what do I do? And then something clicks for him. He's like, it needs water. He gives it some water, and he says, oh, you just needed somebody to take care of you, didn't you? And he has this epiphany. <gasps> Earth isn't what it was. Earth needs someone to take care of it. We've got to go back. And that's like the, the rising action or something, where now it's like, you know what the plot is. So go watch the movie. But the captain knew that work takes love. Cultivating and tending the earth needed love, and it still does. Come on. Look at verse 11. He says, encourage you, siblings, to do this even more, this being to love one another. So you would think that maybe he's going to say, pray for each other, reach out to each other, host each other, have meals, you know, care for each other's kids or whatever, care for each other when you're sick, something like that, right? When I say I want you to love one another, those might be the things that come to mind. Well, Paul just takes a totally different turn, and he says, I want you to seek. Now, pause. Some translations will say, make it your ambition. How many ambitious folks do we have in this building? I need some hands. I know we have more ambition in this room than that. Hey, where are my entrepreneurs at, huh? Tammy has a few more jackets that he's selling, so if you, uh, you want to go get them, it's an exclusive. It's going to close like today, so if you want one, get it today. But that dude has some ambition. I remember when he was teaching, and he has just come up. I don't know what else to say, because he's driven. He's ambitious. Where are my other ambitious people at? Huh? I see you, Ubas. Who else? 
y'all are all no everybody's like don't call on me man i'm not that ambitious i don't know i don't know that's not why i do it i'm like yeah if i was selling something for you you'd be raising your hand you'd be up here like what do you need hey i'm just playing but when you think of ambition you typically think of like a high energy high urgency right this very large word this drive something that is an honor something that's to be proud of and then he follows it with to lead a quiet life what this high emotion word with this very quiet low energy word so love is somehow connected to this ambition and this quiet life what in the world is going on it makes me think of dr king jr he said, if it falls to your plot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. When you have ambition, there is nothing that is beneath you because everything is an honor because of the drive. And Paul says something similar. He says, lead a, a quiet life. Quiet is this idea of refraining from disturbing acts. I think of like uh, ludicrous shouting DTP, right? It's not disturbing the peace. It's being peaceable. There was this idea of order. Be in order, which is interesting. And he says, it's almost like this idea of an economic ecosystem, like play your role. If you remove yourself from this ecosystem, things are not gonna run the way that they are supposed to. But if you insert yourself and you contribute, then something will go as it should. That is the picture here of leading a quiet life. So that's interesting. Then he says, to mind your own business. This is the idea of doing or busying yourself with something, paying attention to it. There's a, uh, an inverse. It's the idea of being meddlesome, of meddling in other people's business. That was something that may have been going on with them. Uh, and why we would do something like that is that we don't recognize the business that God has given us. Uh, in the Greek, it doesn't say to mind your own business. It says to mind your own, your own things, your own interests, your own desire, to mind your own but the idea is communicating, don't get so caught up in what someone else has going on or what someone else is doing that you are negligent with what God has given you to do. What has God given you? And when you remove God from your things, then that's hard to see. And so you may, like the Greeks, not wanna work with your own hands. This is the idea of effort, of contribution, of seeing work as good, not all about leisure. That's what the Greeks were about at the time. Uh, manual labor was real low for them, so the rich would look down on that. That's like work for those who uh, are considered property culturally. They didn't want to do that. And so that had potentially kind of bled into this community for the Thessalonians. And all of that has me thinking, well, then what's my ambition? What's driving me? What's your ambition? What's driving you? What are the things that motivate you? 
And has that changed? You know, when you're a little bit younger, you're driven with like the work itself. You're like, I want to be great at this thing. When I grow up, I want to do that. You don't care what money, you don't care what benefits. You're like, that thing is cool and I wanna do that. Theo would be a firefighter, he would work on the trash truck, he would work a skid steer or an excavator or a back, I could name all the diggers now. Uh, he, 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 he would love that and I would be cool with that. But then culturally, he's gonna grow up and be like, I don't know if that's what I should be doing and I'm like, whatever God gives you to do, kid, go do it. There's something that happens where we get older and we start to see things as tiered. There's a status. Our motivations might get a little uh, murky. So is it money that's driving us? Is it status? Is it control over our outcomes, our environments, our future? Is it fear of what's to come and needing to stockpile as much as possible? Or is it love? Paul makes a connection from our loving to our working here in this passage. Paul called them higher to partner with God, to be his coworker, and he called them lower to serve through their work. And is that what drives us? Is that what we seek? Is that our ambition? And this wasn't a new command for them. Notice in verse 11 it says, as we commanded you, which sounds a lot like chapter 4 and verse 2. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So in Acts 17, when Paul's like three weeks or so with the Thessalonians, these are things that he's telling them while he's there. And he's just running it back. This is something that they are continually struggling with. Their love is somehow disconnected from their work. There's something that is missing. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, warn those who are idle. So Paul is calling all of the siblings to participate in admonishing one another to live up to what God has called them to do. That's not meddling, that's responsible sibling. Do you notice a difference? Maybe, maybe not, but let's keep moving. And then he writes them a second later, letter later on, and in that second letter, he goes ham. Paul's a little older, so he's been a little bit more direct maybe. I'm not sure, but in 2 Thessalonians 3, you can go and read it. He is going in on being idle and not being busybodies, not getting into all uh, everybody else's uh, business and talking about what they got going on. Like, yo, go contribute, man. This is something that is going on. There's a pattern for them of not working. And there's some arguments. Some people think that it's theological. Maybe their view of Jesus coming back quickly influenced the fact that they were like, well, if he's coming back soon, then I don't need to work. I don't need to retire. I don't need this. So I'm just going to play around with my time and whatever. That may be true. It may be cultural. They may be thinking like the Greeks. I don't want to work. That's beneath me. I just want to live in leisure and luxury. Whatever it was, Whatever contributed to this, they needed love. As a commentator who said, nothing disrupts the peace of a Christian community more than the unwillingness of members to shoulder their part of the responsibility in the community. And something like that was happening here. They needed love. But love takes work. If work takes love, then we need to work at our love because love takes work, and then that would cultivate, and now we have 
a permaculture, right? Our love to our work, our work to our love, so that we can continue growing. That's kind of this picture that happens here. And so I think knowing what God has given us for work could help with this. If I asked you, we just are talking, and I'm like, hey, what is your theology of work? Would you be able to give anything from Scripture that supports the idea that whatever it is God has given you to do matters? Do you think that you could do that? This isn't like a pass or fail thing. It's a prod. I want you to consider that. If you cannot, let me give you two passages from the very beginning of Scripture. I'm talking like the first and second pages. Hopefully, these will be an encouragement to you. In Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1, as God is creating all of what we see, what we have, he's taking chaos, bringing order so that humans can flourish, and in that, he creates humans. Now, this is against the backdrop of everyone else's creation story, Sumer and Assyria and Egypt, Babylon, so they have a different idea of what's going on. And so God creates humans to bear his image, to be his representatives. There's a big term, vice regents. They're like governors on his behalf in an area, if you will. God put humans on earth to represent him, to partner with him. Other gods, other countries, their view of God was that the gods were above this manual labor of keeping up with the earth. It was beneath them. And so they created humans as slaves to work on their behalf. If you ever want to know if God has a high view of humanity, go back to this and pair it with what the neighbors said. God didn't put us here to do the work that is beneath him. God is actively at work in his creation, still creating, sustaining everything that we see, and he's using us, partnering with us to do it. You have a very high call to work, to cultivate but this mandate to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.28, it has to do with babies, sure, but it also has to do with nations. We don't just make people. People then create nations. They create cultures. It is a cultural mandate. So what you do to cultivate our, the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in in our culture, the good that you put into it, matters so very deeply. That is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Start your theology of work there. You are not a robot. You are not subhuman. God has a high value of you and the work that you do. And then it goes on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says that the Lord took humanity, took Adam, and put this uh, human in the garden to work it and to keep it, to work it and to watch over it. That, th both of those words become really important throughout the Old Testament, but that word for work, it means to cultivate. It means to tend, to serve. It later becomes uh, a term for uh, cultic worship in the temple. Eden was a temple. Humans were working this temple. The earth is a temple, humans are working this temple. And so what you do in your cultivating, in your tending, in your serving, is worship to God. Oh, I don't think you heard me. 
what you do to cultivate, to keep, to work, to serve is worship to God. As you contribute to God's creation, as you contribute to humanity, as you contribute to culture, what you are doing is worship to God. You are invited in your everyday nine to five or in your, uh, tell me, Miss Irene, in your eight to eight, you know, in your whatever it is that God has called you to do, it is worship to God. You don't have to wonder if you can have time with God in the morning and then maybe time with God at night. You can have life with God all of the time, even in your work. He is with you in your work. You can invite him into your tasks. Yield those things over to him because it is worship to him. It is worship. C.S. Lewis said, We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He's everywhere incognito. But he doesn't have to be incognito to those who know him. You can work with him, alongside of him. And if you feel like your work is less than, if you feel like maybe your work is a part of the curse, I would tell you that frustration with your work is a part of the curse. Your work being boring sometimes, not feeling super productive, those are all a part of the curve. The curve, the curse. But your work, your work, uber important, so important. Uber driver, important. Janitor, important. President, important. It all matters so deeply. Dorothy Sayers, we're real mid-century today, She said that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to telling them how to live upright or how to be a part of the church community through attendance. What the church should be telling him or her is this, that the very first demand that religion makes upon that work is that he should make good tables. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The only Christian work is good work well done. The only Christian work is good work well done. This is Genesis 1. This is all throughout history. This is you today. The work that you do, the labor that you do, if it's done in love, if you are doing it well, is worship to God. It matters so deeply. And that is one reason for our work, but Paul provided another reason, another purpose statement. He says in verse 12, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders. That's one. And not be dependent on anyone. That's two. The idea here is a little bit reputation. Not that you would have some like following and be whatever, but the idea of being reputable, being respectable, having 4.3 or more stars on your reviews, you know what I'm saying? That you are trustworthy. And then it's the idea of provision. Those are the bottom line, not profit, not benefits. The bottom line for Paul in working is that we would reflect God well to those who don't know him and that we would be able to provide. Now here, it's, it's not be dependent on anyone. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit. But in Ephesians 4, all throughout Scripture, it talks about working so that you can contribute to those who have need. Being in need is not bad. Needing is not bad. 
Do you hear me? Acts 2, it's like championed. They distributed to those who had need. As anyone had need, anyone could get cared for. That's not what's being said here. The idea is that some people were leeching, chasing after leisure and luxury, not contributing, chasing after being yielded to God and to the community. If that was the bottom line that Paul provided, what is yours? What are you chasing? What are you wanting out of your work? Because here's the deal. When you work at love, like verse 9 says, you have no need for someone to write to you about it because God is your teacher. And when you love at work, you have need for nothing or no one. The idea isn't being independent. The idea is being interdependent, that the body can be symbiotic and take care of itself. And Paul takes those phrases that you don't need someone to write to you and you could need for nothing. He takes that phrasing and bookends the passage on purpose. It's beautiful. And so what do we do with that? This is what I say. Work at love because love works. Work at love because love works. Work towards your love. Invest in your love. Put the work that it takes into being loving, into being taught by God to love because love works. It overflows. It gives. Work at love because love works toward God God is loving us in our work and through our work. He's giving us purpose. He's providing formation. We're getting to grow in our skills, in our gifts, in our character. If you're a part of a great team, praise be to God. That team is helping you to be the best you that you could be, helping you to do more than you could do by yourself. That's awesome. That is part of what God has set up for humans to do. But you also get to love God through your work. Remember the idea of how do we please God in our purity? Same thing here. How do we please God in our love? We, we as Ms. Sayers said, do good work that's well done. And that's worship to him. So our time with him doesn't end. It continues. I just cannot say this enough. God has called you to co-work with him. You get to be God's coworker. He said that in the beginning. He has said that in his mission that we are on right now to make disciples, and he's promising you that for eternity into the future. Are you tracking with me? That forever and ever and ever, you get to work alongside of God to bring about what he wants in his world, and his creation. That's beautiful. And so the work that you do now, you are a preview of what's to come. Also, the work that you do now, the desire and the effort will come back to you in heaven. It is a payment, an investment. That doesn't mean that you're going to somehow have this great benefits package or some massive mansion. I'm not talking about the things that you get. I'm saying the desires that you pour out. No one can take something from you that you are giving. So if you feel like somebody is using you at work or something to that effect, if you are doing work well, don't stay in an abusive situation. Get out. But if you are doing work well in a place where you are underappreciated or something to that effect, God sees you and God will pay that to you in eternity. Just wait and see. Tolkien had this imagination, uh, this dude in his leaf or something, that he couldn't get past this one leaf in a painting, and then he finds his tree in eternity. 
Let your redeemed imagination look at all of like the, if you're a realtor, all the houses that you sold in heaven, you know? You can, you can have mine in heaven. I'm not buying a house right now, but you can have mine in heaven. I'll sell it. You can be my listing agent or whatever. Buying agent. <laughs> this is when illustrations break down. For some of us, we need to know that, ah, it's not important. Heaven comes to earth. New earth is here, and it matters, okay? And God wants to transform us and transform the world through our work. Let's keep moving. Love works toward God, but work at love because love works toward self. In working well, we get to find God in our work. We get to, oh, and I'm going to say more about this. So it becomes like a spiritual discipline. But you're also loving others through your work. I want you to imagine if you feel like your work is dull, if you feel like your work doesn't have purpose, this is what I want you to do this week. At some point every day, I want you to ask, who's the person on the other side of my work? Who's the person on the other side of my work? As you labor, as you contribute, who is getting the payoff? Who's getting the benefit on the other side? And ask yourself that question over and over again. And that can potentially help you to see the value in your work to another person, the benefit to another person beyond just providing for yourself and for the others around you. But you don't just work toward yourself. Work at love because love works toward others. Martin Luther said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. It's great news. And you are not only loving others through your work, but others are loving you. If you're in a season where you don't feel like you're seen, think about the places that you frequent, the people who know your name. If you don't have one, pick one. Quickly. Where people can know who you are. I think about... Uh, being the person on the other side of someone's work. Uh, these are new glasses. And so I thought about it. This was a thought exercise for me. I went to, I just went to Walmart by my house. There's like an optician there. It was close. It was the cheapest that I could find. I went in. Someone took my phone call. I went in. There was intake forms that had to happen and the entry level exams that had to happen. Somebody did that. There was a doctor who was there. He did some things. I went around through a couple doors. There was someone working at the, uh, the glasses and contacts place who helped me get some, glass, uh, some contacts. Someone on the other end of that received that order, found my stuff, packed it, and shipped it to me. Now I have contacts so I can play basketball or whatever else. And then I went to Warby Parker, and there were like three or four different people who took great care of me to help me find some glasses that I liked. They may not look great, but I like them, okay? Got my Harry Potter on today. You'll never see me differently after that. Um, but they helped me find those frames. Then someone helped me make that purchase. Someone took lenses, fit them to my frames, packed them, shipped them. The mail uh, delivery people give it to my house, give it to me in my house. And now I have them. How many people contributed to me being able to see and feel comfortable with how I look as I see? So very many. And they may be showing up to work 
and think, ah, why does this matter? When you show up to work, what you do matters. And think of all of the people who care for you in their work. Here's the last thing. Maybe you need to work backwards. Maybe you're spent, you're tired, you're not able to see this about your your work. What I would say is work backwards, reverse engineer it, and find out where the pain point is. And I would almost guarantee that some of your pain comes from a lack of margin. I talk about it often. We're a frenetic society. We are always moving, but activity does not mean impact, and movement does not, does not mean progress. And so I would ask you if maybe the reason why you are tired is because you're overcommitted. I feel really tired right now, and I'm asking myself, in what ways are we overcommitted as my child dad, dad, well, crawls up here? <laughs> But it's hard to see work as more than anything besides a time suck, an energy vacuum when you're so tired with all the things you're committed to. And maybe you need to work at love by building in some margin, by pulling back from something. Because if what you do at work matters, then you don't have to go outside of work to do everything else that you feel like matters. Spend some time with God so that you can work at love and love at work because love works. All right, let me get out of your hair with this. The captain of the ship in Wally, uh, he wins. That's just what I need to say. He wins. He starts learning about earth, and uh, he notices the disrepair that it's fallen into. He has the epiphany that I mentioned, and these rogue robots help him. They take out Otto, and they take the ship back to Earth. They are rescued from uh, this kind of technology, having tyranny over them. They get to Earth, and they immediately plant that, uh, that plant, that life. It, no idea what it is, but they plant it immediately. And then the captain says, all right, kids, look at this. You're going to plant all type of stuff. You're going to plant vegetable plants and pizza plants. And you're like, ah, the dystopia. Do they actually live or not? I don't know. <laughs> But they get to earth and they, they, they plant. They care for it. They tend it. They work it. They cultivate it. They worked at love and their love worked the earth. And the same thing can be true for us. You are invited to partner with God in your work. You are invited to love others in your work to contribute through your work is a high calling, but it's such a gift, something that takes, for most of us, so much time. What would it be like to have life with God at your work, to live with Him, to be with Him, to be shaped by Him as you type, as you teach, as you tend, as you care? Work at love because love works. Toward God, toward us, and toward others. Thank you again for listening to the Disciple City Church Podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom.